and welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, where we offer a skeptical take on U.S. foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford, a research fellow in foreign policy at Cato. And I'm Trevor Thrall, a senior fellow here at Cato. Today, we're talking about how the Pentagon is faring under the Trump administration. The administration seems pretty determined to rely on the Department of Defense as the primary tool of U.S. foreign policy. With the president's open acclaim for his generals, the Pentagon looms really large in foreign policy today. But problematic issues still abound, from nuclear modernization to the defense budget. So joining us today for our first Facebook Live recording of our podcast is Aaron Mehta, a senior Pentagon correspondent and associate editor for Defense News. And Aaron, thanks so much for joining us well, for thank this. Thank you guys for having me. Let's start with the news biz, and we get to ask you about what's going on oh, in the boy. world this right. week. Let's um, do it. So let's start with the big topic, the one we cover, I think, every podcast we've done this year, which is another week, another missile test. North Korea is, uh, again, saber-rattling. The, the Trump administration is, is doing the same. I think H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, said just last week that the threat of conflict with North Korea is rising every day. Um, so what do you think? How do we interpret this? Yeah, so uh, McMaster was out at the uh, Reagan National Defense Forum out near L.A., the Reagan Library. Um, I was there. He said these comments. It was you know, clearly a big part of his speech was to, again, bring forth the idea that North Korea is a issue that needs to be dealt with soon. And that there's kind of a, a deadline of some sort that we're approaching. What that deadline is is kind of unclear. Um, you know, if you if you talk to the Trump administration, they say, there has to be a denuclearized Korea, right? No nuclear weapons. You talk to experts in the field and they say, well, so you have a time machine handy? I mean, that's they have a nuclear weapon. They are having successful ICBM tests. Yes, the most recent test broke up, but it broke up because it basically went like this straight in the air and then came back down. Uh, you talk to people who know this stuff and they say if it didn't break up, that would be some sort of scientific miracle. So if they don't have an ICBM, they can, they can mate with the warhead right now. They're getting close to it. Whether that's the red line or not, there seems to be some confusion on that. Yeah, this is such a strange question, isn't it? Because the Trump administration says, you know, we're, we are approaching this deadline. And I mean, as far as I can tell, the North Koreans probably crossed that that deadline maybe three months ago. Yeah, this sounds like an internal deadline to the U.S., not a not a matter of some objective threshold that North Korea passes. They've passed all the thresholds that matter, as far as any experts can tell. This sounds a lot. This and the reason this is such a disturbing comment to hear from McMaster is this sounds like something the Trump administration has already decided. Uh, the idea that the Trump administration has already decided we're going to go to war with North Korea without a public debate about the most uh, deadly possible conflict since World War II, that's disturbing. Yeah, so I just um, – fun fact about me that nobody knows because why would you know this? In college, I was basically a Korean history minor. Basically, the classes matched up where I didn't have to wake up on Fridays and didn't have class for 1.30, which is the most important thing. The secondary aspect of that is I have a lot of random Korean history books. So I went back and I started reading again recently uh, a book called The Two Koreas. It's by an author named Don Orbedorfer, longtime uh, Washington Post Korea expert and, and uh, writer out there. Um, and he had this, this line, I just jotted this down, in 1994, the Pentagon estimate for if they had to go to war with Korea was 52,000 U.S. troops, uh, 490,000 South Korean troops, casualties within the first 90 days. That doesn't include, obviously, North Korean troops, doesn't include potentially Chinese they got involved, uh, certainly doesn't include civilians. Seoul famously is 50 miles or so from the DMZ. 70% of North Korea's military is facing towards the DMZ. 
those numbers would certainly be up now, and that's without it being a nuclear casualty. So best case, we're talking hundreds of thousands of people in a conventional war killed if that happens. Obviously, I think everyone involved would like that not to get to that point. Yeah, that's why the Trump administration's attitude on this is, is so strange. Um, you know, and I think it's uh, Jeffrey Lewis from the Monterey Institute had a really terrifying article last week in which he basically not so much wargamed a conflict uh, in, in the Korean Peninsula, but basically said, well, this is the way it could play out. And, and the, the casualty totals are substantially higher than the ones you list there because the North Koreans eventually choose to go nuclear because they misinterpret what we're doing. So this is all very concerning. Yeah, I mean, there's no good, uh, no good option if you, a war in Korea bursts out, and there may be justifications for that. That's kind of a separate question. The reality is, if something does kick off in Korea and becomes a military situation, it's going to be massively, just frankly, awful from a humanitarian standpoint, from an economic standpoint too. And we're talking about Korea is the eleventh largest economy. Japan is right there. Obviously, we get drawn in. China gets drawn in. It's a bad situation, let's put it that way. Yeah, well, the, the one person that might be happy about it perhaps is Eric Prince, uh, who is back in the news this week, and I think we should shift to talking about him. Um, he was testifying for Congress a couple of weeks ago, but perhaps most interestingly, we had a couple of news stories. Um, first, that he plans to set up a private intelligence agency for Trump, reporting directly to the president, bypassing U.S. intelligence agencies. Then second, that he would like to set up a plan for the war in Afghanistan, where he basically turns it into a private war and strip mines Afghanistan stand for profits on the side. Um, so uh, all of this is just, again, incredibly strange from the point of view of U.S. foreign policy. Is this, I mean, bad idea, worst idea, or the, the worst idea you've ever heard? Well, it's an idea. Um, let's give him <laughs> credit for creativity. Uh, yeah, so BuzzFeed, uh, an old friend of mine, Arm Rustin, was the author who uh, has really been all over the Prince stuff, and he's the one who got a hold of the slide deck where essentially Prince was laying out the idea of the mineral wealth of Afghanistan. What's interesting about that is if you go back to August when President Trump revealed his new Afghanistan strategy, there was a lot of talk in the lead up to that about the mineral wealth of Afghanistan and ways that maybe that could be tapped or perhaps used to help fund certain U.S. activities. Uh, at the time, we didn't know all the backstory, though there were some hints of this. I think this kind of helps put that in light, given that we know uh, Eric Prince has something of a direct line to President Trump. I mean, this is interesting because uh, Prince has also floated the idea of running for Senate, which, you know, right. so I, I don't know how he runs a private intelligence service while while serving in the U.S. Senate. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think <clears throat> this collection of ideas goes runs from from horrible to the worst ever. Um, uh, you know, we, we have enough concerns about how the CIA operates and the transparency with which it operates w without it being private. Um, and, you know, the idea that we're going to move from, uh, you know, occupying uh, Afghanistan, and Iraq and maybe parts of Syria forever to we're going to start, uh, you know, strip mining and profiting from doing so. I mean, it just uh, really, I mean, that's just why anyone would listen to this guy is beyond me. Well, and as a, a budget weenie a little bit, uh, there's the part of my brain which says, OK, so let's say that the authorization for a private CAA gets set up. Who's funding this? Does Congress have to approve it? You know, because obviously that would be a bit of a roadblock, most likely. Uh, does it come out of Trump's personal fund? I mean, how does this whole thing work? So yeah, there's and questions. I, and, and as I understand it, you know, I'm not in any way a lawyer, but people have told me that this is, is not just it would be difficult to set up. It's actually illegal under existing authorities, which basically mandate that there has to be supervision by the existing intelligence community of private contractors. So not clear how Trump gets around that part either. Details. Details can be worked out. Yeah. 
Oh, well, let's move on to our last news story of the week. Um, and, and I'm particularly enjoying this one because it really harkens back to the Cold War. Um, mm. And so we've seen the Russians banned from the upcoming Winter Olympics due to the doping scandal. Apparently, when they hosted the Olympics in Sochi, their athletes were high as kites and the Russians helped to cover it up. The government helped to cover it up. And then just last week, we have Nikki Haley on the U.S. side saying, well, with tensions rising with North Korea, maybe the U.S. won't send a delegation to the Olympics. Um, so this is basically to Cold War 2.0. Yeah. So uh, again, I'm going to put my, my Korean nerd hat on for a second. Um, in 1988, when South Korea hosted its first Olympics, that was a massive, massive deal for Seoul. It was a way to show the rest of the world, hey, we are an advanced nation. We are educated. It was also a great political tool. They actually managed to get a lot of the Eastern Bloc countries to uh, talk to them for the first time and to come to the Olympics. Pyongyang was putting a lot of pressure on Yugoslavia, other nations to just not go. Uh, that didn't happen. They all came. The Olympics was a huge success. In a lot of ways, if you talk to South Korean you know, experts and policymakers, they look at that and they say, that was a big starting point for us. Um, they want to use it again for that reason. This is a big deal for South Korea, uh, the idea of the, the Olympics as a starting point. The Olympics, by the way, 2020 in Japan, 2022 in China, there is a regional pressure situation, a bit of a challenge there. And the Chinese will have to send an official to the closing of the South Korean Olympics to accept the torch for the next Winter Olympics. That's how these things go. Um, so there's a lot of geopolitics tied into this. Uh, you know, I was in Seoul a couple weeks ago. We talked with some officials, and there was a lot of enthusiasm about the Olympics and how they could use this to try to reach out to North Korea, try to create ties with China and other partners in the area. Um, the idea that the U.S. would not send its Olympics, Olympics athletes because it might not be safe, that it could encourage people to not go, that's a really bad deal for South Korea. Uh, they're counting on this to boost their economy. They're counting on this to boost their uh, reputation. If the U.S. even hints, continues to hint, now Haley has walked that back and uh, the White House has walked that back as well. But if these hints continue to go or even if in just certain media there's things of, oh, well, should, the, should you travel because North Korea might attack, uh, that's going to be a big blow to South Korea. That's, there's real implications here. Yeah. yeah I, I, as the only person here old enough to actually remember <laughs> the last time <clears throat> the United States pulled out of the Olympics in 1980 – when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about this kind of thing because on the one hand, it was, uh, you know, as a young kid who loved the Olympics, it was horrible to watch an Olympics without the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and, and funny enough, the timing of that was we had just had the miracle on ice beating the Soviets in ice hockey in the Winter Olympics right. and then not to go to the Summer Olympics when you're sort of all high on patriotism. Well, I don't know. That was terrible. So that, that would just be bad for sports fans, yeah. right? Um, the Olympics are great. The Olympics are awesome. And, Corrupt, and, great. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, um, the Soviets, it was not exactly a secret uh, throughout the Cold War that the Soviets, the East Germans, and some of the other uh, you know, Warsaw Pact countries cheated uh, like fiends. Sure. Uh, everyone knew that some of the people on those teams had a few too many muscles in places that people don't usually grow muscles. And so I, on the other hand, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that the, the Russians are uh, getting their comeuppance. But it does – it makes it, it – you know, takes the Olympics from being – uh, you know, something that should have these positive geopolitical sort of mm -hmm. effects. And, you know, it just seems like over the last several Olympics, the corruption, the, the cost overruns where it turns out people are losing money when right. they host the Olympics. And then there's sort of the worker inequality and, uh, you know, sort of uh, mis abuse issues. The Olympics are, are a little tarnished these days. And it would be nice to have, 
um, you know, not have that. Yes. Yeah. I'll just say the uh, one of my favorite, not favorite, but things I always think about come the Olympics is the fact that in 2014, Russia held the Olympics. It was seen as, oh, this might be a disaster. They pulled it off. Everyone left going, man, Russia's great. Like, they've really come into the 21st century and, like, we can be an ally. We can, you know, there's issues, but we'll work together. And they really put on this great party. And it was like 10 days later they invaded Ukraine. And it was just all this goodwill just right out the window. Um, so... You know, I was actually, I was in Moscow over those okay. 10 days um, in 2014, and it was bizarre because right as I arrived, the, the Russians were all, you know, they were so pumped up on we've hosted the Olympics, the world is coming here, it's great. And by the sort of the end of that 10-day period, I think I flew out of Domodedovo on the morning that they invaded Crimea. Um, and, I, I, you know, over the course of that week, you could just feel public attitudes towards sort of foreigners in their midst. It changed. Mm, that you know, quickly, and, huh? Yeah, and whether it was, you know, just state media or something like that, but you could almost feel the atmosphere change and get more uh, tensions rising yeah. over that period, which was was so strange. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we should move along uh, because we are overrunning our time. Um, and before we hit our main topic of the day, I just want to quickly ask Aaron uh, our surprise question of the day, uh -oh. which we've asked everyone else this year, um, and which being a journalist, maybe you have a different take on, um, which is what do you think the most overhyped threat to America is? And then what do you think is the most, I guess, underrated threat, the one we don't talk about? I'll do underrated first. I think this has been talked about a bit, but it, the more I learn about it, the more it worries me, the infrastructure in the U.S. Um, and mm. that includes issues like, you know, look, we haven't kept our bridges up the way we should, but it's security infrastructure. Uh, if you ever wrote an article about this a couple weeks ago, U.S. bases, right, military bases, they rely on the local power grids. They don't have their own power sources in most cases. So we saw this in Turkey uh, last year where the Turks cut off power to Incirlik in Turkey uh, for, right after the, uh, the attempted coup in Turkey. Um, you know, if you're a, a cyber attacker, you're China, you want to get in and mess with things, you can go in and shut down the gates, essentially, to a U.S. base. You could, you know, when the U.S. forces are trying to scramble something, you could get into the system through a public power utility or HVAC or something, get into a system and, and mess with the base. Uh, Local, you know, if your base is in the middle of Alabama and your little local town is the one that's supporting it, they're not going to have cyber-hardened capabilities for this type of thing. So I think that's something that the, the military is starting to become aware of. Um, and broadly, I think infrastructure is an issue. In terms of overhyped... Um, there's a lot of options. There's a lot of out. options. That's <laughs> the thing, yeah. Uh, I'm going to pick uh, ba -da -ba -da -ba -da -ba. losing our edge in space. Um, which is kind of a weird one, and it's very open-ended, but uh, we hear a lot about how the U.S. has fallen behind the space and, and we're not matching up. U.S. is still pretty good. And, yes, other countries are getting better. And other countries are able to launch things with more capabilities and, you know, yada, yada, yada. But I don't think it's to the point where the U.S. is in danger of losing its Overwatch capabilities or, or being able to maintain that edge. Um, scientifically, maybe you can make the case other countries are doing more on the – civil science side, and we've lost our edge there, but that's kind of a separate question. Um, but I'll probably walk out of here and think of three things and just be like, ah, damn. No, that's really interesting. And, and again, different answers. I'm amazed how almost everyone we've asked this year has given basically different answers. So, But let's perhaps return to a subject that's a little more comfortable for you. Right. And that's, and Blowing that's things up. the military, the Pentagon, uh, the defense budget, um, and how the Trump administration perhaps is, is treating the Pentagon. Um, so it seems like 
the president has a pretty close relationship with the military, um, particularly with the number of sort of former or ex-military men that he's brought into his cabinet. Um, but how does that look like from inside the Pentagon? As a, as a Pentagon correspondent, you presumably spend a lot of time there talking to people. What's the sort of the inside take on that? Yeah, it's been really interesting. Um, I mean, there's a couple aspects here. And, and the first one I'll do is the question of uh, uniform power inside the building. By design, the U.S. military is supposed to be under civilian control. Uh, in a certain sense, that was changed a little bit this year. You have Secretary Mattis, who you know was retired general, uh, very well respected, certainly. But you heard in conversations with people saying, well, anybody else, we wouldn't have agreed to waive the situation and let Mattis come in. But, well, Mattis is such a good guy and Trump and, okay, we have to just let the situation happen. Um, but then you have McMaster, you have John Kelly, uh, certainly other folks kind of scattered around at lower levels. Um, and you have that kind of coinciding with the lack of civilians in the building, which has let the joint staff and the uniform staff inside the building really take on a larger role and take on a lead role in the way that they haven't always had in the past. Now, there's always tension between the joint staff, the Office of Secretary of Defense, the services. That's kind of how the Pentagon's set up. It's natural. The uniform always try to say, well, we know what we're doing. Let's take the lead. That usually balances itself out. In this case, there's not a lot of balancing on the civilian side to the uniform side. And that's starting to affect decision making in a way that we haven't really seen uh, for at least the time I've been covering it. I was going to say, that's actually another question that I wanted to ask you. Um, you you're basically saying the lack of civilian bodies in the building at the Pentagon. And, and we're hearing all sorts of stories about staffing. And, and mm -hmm. everyone's sort of saying, well, the Department of Defense is better off than the State Department because they have some appointees. But there's still a lot of empty chairs over there. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, the Pentagon is better off than the State Department. I don't think there's any question about that, uh, at least in this, this regard. Um, I jotted down right before I came in here, so I think these are correct. Uh, there are 26 confirmed civilian uh, people have to be confirmed by the Senate. Uh, 18 are awaiting confirmation, and 14 spots have no nominees. That includes the general counsel and some other top spots. The biggest missing spot is the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. That's considered in many ways the number three at the Pentagon. Uh, they're the ones who kind of do international relations. They formulate you know, policy guidance, things like that. Uh, they have a nominee for that. It's still slowly being processed. They just got in a deputy until last month. Uh, a guy who was three levels down was basically filling that top level spot because the way it works is basically the chain of command and whoever is the guy who's in becomes the acting as. Um, it's, the way you say that, I'm thinking like the janitor is now yeah, sitting basically. in the Secretary of Defense's <laughs> office. I mean, especially the first couple of weeks when they had nobody new coming in. Um, it was literally just these lifelong civil servants who were basically elevated to these jobs that, you know, they certainly tried hard. They've, they're dedicated to their work. They worked hard. But, you know, when it comes to a fight between a four-star general and a guy who's the acting, 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 deputy acting, even if the four-star general salutes and says, yes, sir, you're in command, you know who's got the power. You know who's got the say. You know who knows more. So there's really a power imbalance there. That's slowly evening out. In the last few months, we've seen a lot more people arrive. Um, Famously, there's this parking lot right by the uh, river entrance to the Pentagon where if you're a big shot, you have a parking pass. And it was shocking through really until about October how empty that parking lot was when you walked in. That's starting to change. There's still a lot of holes that you know normally would have been filled by now. So I, I have two questions about that, though. Yeah. And the first is just a sense. And having not worked in the Pentagon, I this is just a sense from the outside. But my sense is that 
in historically many of the civilian appointees under Republican presidents are, you know, former military or what I might call military adjacent. Mm. Um, so they're hawks, and the tensions between that flavor of civilian leadership and the uniformed folks in the Pentagon is not a, a wide chasm. <laughs> Under Democrats, it, it, the chasm can get a little broader, even even though Democrats do tend to interring people with obviously defense right. policy experience and so on. So, so I wonder the extent to which you know that's anything new, really. I mean, I, I'm not sure who Trump's going to bring in is going to change the direction of the Pentagon in any meaningful way, number one. And number two, my other t- sense is that um, Trump in particular, I mean, all presidents have gathered power to the NSC uh, over time. And so, so much more of, of foreign policies run out of the NSC, especially the military side of things, than ever before. Uh, what role does the Pentagon have in helping Trump formulate foreign policy at this point? I mean, is it really an, an input there? I, I'm not... Yeah, it's actually interesting. Um, I'll do the first part first. Uh, you're right. Likely, people who are going to come into this administration, you're not going to see a lot of peaceniks coming in to, you know, disarm the Pentagon and take their budget away. Um, and industry is playing a really big role. Industry too. is playing a big role, yeah. and that's what's a little unusual. Always, there's some industry people who come in, but basically, the Republican establishment, a lot of the foreign policy and defense establishment, signed the Never Trump letter over the summer, which said, "We will never support Trump." Uh, <laughs> That was a time when everyone thought Trump was going to lose and these guys would come out of this with their reputation intact and be able to say, we stood up for our values and, and move on. Uh, that didn't happen. And some of those people have said to me, you know, I was willing to swallow my pride and eat crow and go because it felt like they needed some experience. Uh, and the Trump team said, if you sign that letter, you are never getting a job. You are blacklisted from the government as long as we're here. And so that right or wrong undercut essentially a whole, you know, bench of people who could fill these spots. You know, both parties have their benches for the defense issues, and these guys were all wiped out. So who do you turn to? Well, there's really only certain groups that can sign, true Trump believers, people in the military who can't sign a letter like that, people in industry who aren't going to sign a letter like that. Industry suddenly kind of jumped in and, and helped fill a lot of the spots. Now, John McCain, who, of course, shares the Senate Armed Services Committee, repeatedly keeps saying, we don't want any more industry people. We don't want any more industry people, but more industry people keep coming. And it seems like as long as those industry people are in the SASC's mind, at least capable, they're going to keep coming. Um, the, the policy nominee is John Rood. He's a Lockheed vice president. He's kind of the, the key example here. Um, NSC. So what's interesting about that is certainly under the Obama administration, the NSC kind of coalesced all the power. Uh, you know, if you, if you talk to who made decision make, it was like NSC, state, DOD. Um, one of the things that Trump allegedly told uh, McMaster and that McMaster talks about openly is trying to devolve some of that back to the Pentagon. So certainly NSC still plays a major part. It's not the sole kind of decision-making power that it used to be. Um, and I think that partly that comes from uh, Mattis being such a figure and, and having such a direct ear to the president. Um, but also the sense, you know, McMaster was in the Pentagon under the Obama NSC. The Pentagon under the Obama NSC chafed under the Obama NSC. What did he do when he went to the NSC? Back to the Pentagon. And we do know, I mean, we do know that the Trump administration has devolved some decision-making power back to the Pentagon, particularly yeah. on things like troop levels. Um, there's just a lot more autonomy there than they had under Obama, but also somewhat more autonomy than they had under previous presidents oh, yeah. as well. And again, that kind of ties back to the question of the uniform decision makers. You know, you can make the case that there should be more autonomy for the Pentagon on troop levels, on strike authorization, things like that. 
that's a perfectly reasonable case. Where it starts to get tricky is when it's only uniform officials making it because there's just not as many powerful civilians in there making that decision. Or again, if the top civilian is friends with all of the uniforms and was in that seat just a couple of years ago. Yeah, and that was one of the issues with Flynn back in the day. Um, but I do want to move on and talk a little about the defense budget, which I have to admit, every time I read about the defense budget, kind of puts me to sleep. So I'm hoping that, that you know more about it and can stay awake. Um, we, we do now finally have uh, an NDAA. We do. There's yes. a bill. It doesn't um, matter, but there's a bill. Why doesn't it matter? So here's the thing. It matters. The, I shouldn't say that. The authorization is important. It lays out the Pentagon's guidance. It says this is how many ships you can buy, how many planes you can buy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's right now tied significantly over the budget caps that are imposed by sequestration. This is an illegal bill at the moment. Uh, now, look, we're under a continuing resolution right now. The assumption is that uh, by the end of this month, there will be some sort of budget deal. We've heard maybe a two-year deal, which will uh, raise the caps to a certain level. Chances are those caps are not going to get to the about $700 billion that the NDAA has. So they're going to have to come back and cut down and figure out what they can lose from that total um, and, you know, it, it's covering the budget is real weird because right now in this environment, because we all rush to cover when the president's budget drops, right? You know, I think I wrote seven stories that day about different budget things. Then there's all the Hill fights and, and this and that, and this congressman wants to put in a space corps and this congressman thinks it's a dumb idea and we write all about it, I'll write all about it. And then because the budget situation is so wacky, we get down here, we're in a CR, so continuing resolution means we're stuck in last year's budget levels. And then we get some sort of budget deal, which is a different number than what the NDA marked up. And so it's, you just find yourself being like, crumple your stories as soon as you write them, throw them in the trash. It's kind of chaos. Yeah. And I have to say, I, I'm not sure I would believe anyone from from any member of Congress or the president or anyone if they said they knew what the final number was going to be oh, yeah. or anything that was going to be in it or out of it. Because if you just look at the last few months of, of you know, congressional sort of machinations on this bill, that bill, and the other thing, uh, it's been chaos. And so it, more than usual, I think, yeah. you know, and the sausage making is particularly ugly. And, and I'm not very confident they're going to get a, a budget sort of stopgap in a way that allows more lawmaking to be done. I think, I mean, it's just sort of like weekly to weekly crisis sort of management at this point. Yeah, like. I mean, if I'm being pessimistic, which I usually am professionally, uh, I would question whether we're really going to get a full deal done by the end of this month or if they're going to have to go back under another two-week or you know month CR to kind of keep kicking it down the road. At a certain point, what's really going to change? What does those extra two weeks actually buy you? you know, can you get the two sides to come, sit together and talk or not? Buys you the time to go home for Christmas, I it guess. It does. <laughs> I mean, that's that's basically what this boils down to. But of course, at the same time, it completely screws up the actual budgeting process. You know, I mean, it's not just the Pentagon. All government agencies, they can't spend money on a lot of things. They can't plan for the future mm -hmm. so long as we're under continuing resolutions. I mean, look, I could go on a rant for a whole other episode <laughs> about how American budgeting is insane that we do it in one year chunks. But that's kind of a separate topic. But it does now lead to these kind of weird situations. Yeah. Well, maybe let's move on to some of the goodies that are in the budget, mm. whether or not they get cut. Um, and, and for me, the most interesting one is there's a huge increase for missile defense spending, presumably because of North Korea. Um, the, the Trump administration is also apparently considering nuclear modernization that could cost something like $1.2 trillion over the next 10 years. Um, so 
really, I guess the question is, what what is what is going on with this? What is the policy that the Trump administration is actually pursuing? What are they likely to actually get? Yeah. So, I mean, we heard when uh, when Trump came in, there's going to be a massive defense buildup, right? And that didn't happen. The bill, the budget that the Trump administration submitted was it was many billions of dollars over the budget level, but by defense standards, it's actually not that much. Um, it was to the point where the Hill folks were saying to the Pentagon, why aren't you asking for more money? We want to give you more money. And the Pentagon was saying, mm, well, but this is what we were told. So that's a very official way how this budgeting process works. Um, so there's a couple of things in there. Missile defense was actually uh, dropped in the initial Trump budget. They actually cut the missile defense agency's budget a little bit. Uh, but then because of how the budgeting process works, you can kind of constantly amend and, and add supplementals. And I think there's been two or three different requests to plus up missile defense. Essentially, it's all related to North Korea. Um, that issue has grown significantly in the minds of this administration over this first year, and they're starting to spend to, to match that. Um, the nuclear side is a little bit different. That's actually a path that the Obama administration put us on uh, starting back in 2010 when they did a big nuclear review. Um, that's basically going to refurbish the entire the ICBMs, uh, the bombers, the cruise missiles, the submarines, all of the warheads, uh, the command and control, cyber hardening, a lot of this stuff, which is probably a good idea. Um, Given so, that it's still on floppy disks, exactly. probably. I actually love the floppy disks because they're basically <laughs> unhackable. So as ridiculous as they are, they can't be messed with because they're so low tech. It's terrifying, but it's <laughs> effective. Um, so in a lot of ways, the Trump administration is actually just continuing that, that budget. That's $1.2 trillion over a 30-year period, $400 billion over the next 10 years is the government estimates for that nuclear modernization. What they are doing uh, is they have a nuclear posture review, which should be just about wrapping up. We expect that to be released sometime in the next month or so. Um, and there's some thought that they might request uh, some sort of new type of miniaturized nuclear weapons, tactical nukes, if you will. Uh, we don't really know what's going to be in there. The guess is it'll largely be continuing this path forward, which is just basically anything with a nuclear tag to it is getting redone. Yeah, and this, this has been an interesting policy choice because, um, you know, if you do go back to some of those debates under Obama, there was there was this debate about whether we needed to renew every leg of the triad yeah. or, you know, could we, could we get uh, along with just perhaps, you know, submarines or perhaps submarines and some land-based missiles, or did we really need the whole shebang? Yeah. Um, but Trump administration seems to be very much just sticking with everything's getting redone. Yeah. And, you know, Trump very early on showed an interest in nuclear weapons. Um, yeah. And I, I remember, I want to say it was in early in January or late December, he called up uh, Mika Brzezinski at MSNBC and said essentially, well, we're going to have the best nuclear weapons, and if there's a nuclear arms race with Russia, then there's a nuclear arms race and we'll win, which set off all sorts of alarm bells in the communities as you'd expect. And kind of since then, there's been a clear emphasis in this administration that we are going to modernize, keep modernizing, and perhaps grow in some way, unclear, perhaps change posture in some way, unclear. Um, but again, a lot of this is just naturally going to be actually continuing what the Obama administration decided to do. Um, and there's there's rationale for keeping certain legs. The uh, the cruise missile that they're working on developing is one that a lot of nonproliferation groups have kind of targeted as a potential cut. Um, Senate Democrats uh, just recently again introduced a letter to try to halt the funding on that weapon. It's not going to get halted. It's going to go forward. Um, but there's there's arguments there for trade offs, particularly because that 1.2 trillion over 30 years 
even by defense budget, that's that's real money. So is there's a chance you can maybe take some of that, slow it down, cut a program, delay a program, use that money to build more ships, maybe get closer to that magical 355 ship navy that won't happen. Uh, you know, there's trade-offs there that might be decided to, to happen in the Pentagon. I think, you know, one of the things that always strikes one about the defense budget debates is how much, you know, sort of bogus posturing is going on as part of the mm. bargaining, you know, sort of game. We ask for this much, so we'll get this much, or I say I'm taking away this, but really I'll give you back that if I can get this. You know, so the, there's that sort of thing that always is happening. But with Trump in particular, I sense that there's a, just an awful lot of theater going on hmm. that he, he, I don't think, understands or cares at all what the nuclear posture is. I mean, if you look, think back to the – I love that comment about Mika, the call to Mika. That, yeah. that, was, that was funny. I, I, terrifying. Like the idea that Reagan would have said in 1984, there's going to be an arms race and we're going to win. Like really? OK. That's crazy. But all right. Even before that though, one of the early debates, there's still 17 Republicans on the stage mm-hmm. and somebody asks Trump about the triad. And he clearly has – you could just see that he's no idea what you're talking about, nuclear triad. And he doesn't answer what he thinks about the nuclear triad. Instead, he goes, the nuclear, the devastation, the power, it's very important to me. And, and we were thinking about getting t-shirts made, the right. nuclear, it's very important to me. I think he mostly just wants to look powerful and tough. And so if Obama was going to do it, if he does less, he looks weaker than Obama, he won't do it. So more ships, biggest defense budget, right? It all makes him look like the leader of the big tough country. He wants military parades. Why? Because they're, no, just to look tough. And so I think, you know, you see this in many, you know, parts of Trump's presidency where he's seems like he's mostly posturing about something that doesn't seem to mean very much in and of itself. And it's really, I think, more about his own ego. Um, and so, I, you know, the Pentagon didn't ask for all that money, mm-hmm. um, you know, but Trump, it's hard for him to back down once that number's on the table, it seems to me. Well, it'll be really interesting to see what happens with this next budget, the 2019 budget. Um, one, if it'll come out before we have a 2018 budget, which you know, <laughs> that's possible. Uh, but, you know, people said... 2018 was going to be this big defense buildup. It didn't happen. Then we asked about that. They're told, well, this was just trying to repair some damage. 2019 is going to be the big buildup. We'll see. Uh, what I'm hearing early on is it's not going to be like a massive spike. Um, I think we're going to see steady growth, you know, 3%, 4%, uh, which again, that's money. But the idea this is going to be the, the massive biggest defense budget ever, I don't know. And, and hold the brakes because – or. The brakes are on or whatever, because hold the phone, because <laughs> um, the midterm elections next year are going to have a lot to say about that. I mean, one of the reasons it's tough to call for a big budget buildup is because the Democrats are holding this stuff hostage to, uh, you know, dollar for dollar. If you're going to spend right. more on defense, guess what? You're going to spend more on our stuff. And well, that's a terrible idea. So that slows everything right back down, much less if the Democrats take one or, you know, both houses uh, in 2018, then you can forget about. Well, the and then, you know, you, again, assuming the budget process takes all year, as it seems to always do. So this budget will be they'll be fighting over it come September, October, right before the elections when everyone wants to be home in their districts. So it, look, if you're a betting person and you want to make the wonkiest bet you can in Vegas, you probably can't make this in Vegas because it's too weird. But uh, probably some of the hill will take your money for this. Put money down on we're going to end up with another continuing resolution come next fall. It's going to happen. Congress just seems perpetually unable to to resolve these issues. Um, so so. Let's, I guess, mostly stop there. But before we wrap up, um, I do want to ask you the question that we we posed in sort of the title of, of today's podcast, which is, wh- what does the Pentagon want for Christmas? So if the Department of Defense could get one thing from the Trump administration, 
what do you think it would be? Yeah, so this actually ties into the last point, um, which is stability. And it's a boring answer, but the truth is the Pentagon, if leaders are being honest with you, they will say, we will take less money if you can give us stable funding for multiple years. If we know how much money we're going to have, we can make that work. But the up and down, being unclear on things, trying to figure out what's going to happen next, that's really killing them. Um, and you know, you can give them all the money in the world, but if you give it to them in September and they have to spend it by October, it's not going to get done right. So that's the answer: is you know, planes, ships, nuclear weapons, spy satellites, you know, a peaceful Korean Peninsula. All that's great, well, and good. But those are just the stocking. Those stuffers. are the stocking stuffers. <laughs> The big president of the tree would be stability. It would be just a big, nice, solid dollar sign, which doesn't move. <laughs> it's like very striped steel or something. Yeah. yeah. Love it. That's a heck of a size of stocking, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so glad I don't have to do that. Um, so I think that's all we have time for today. Um, but I'd like to thank everybody that joined us uh, here on the live podcast. And thanks to Aaron, obviously, for a great discussion. Um, so next time on the podcast, we have a special treat. We'll finally spend an episode, an entire episode, discussing our surprise question. What are the most overhyped and underrated threats to the US? Um, and you could also check out Cato's blog next week as our foreign policy scholar uh, all try and answer this question, you know, what do you want for Christmas in foreign policy? So as always, thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld. And if you liked our episode, please share the link on Twitter, reach out to us on social media, or say something nice about us on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks for joining us.